Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. It's winter and uh, we charge forward. We have our full panel, but Robert Craig is not with us. He is away on a trip uh, around the state today that we're launching a campaign to try to end child poverty and Robert will talk more about that. But Robert Craig, thanks for joining us via phone. Good day, everyone. In the studio, because we have such a great recording studio, it's Rebecca Lynch from the Wisconsin Working Families Party. Rebecca? Hi, good day. All right. And then we have a special guest who's going to be uh, joining us right away to talk about our first issue, and that is we want to talk about the election this week in Alabama and its implications. And joining us is... Mandela Barnes. Mandela, a former state representative, I should say, Mandela Barnes. Mandela, thanks for joining us today. And uh, more importantly, a Citizen Action co-op member. Oh, excellent point. I'm, I'm glad you point that out. So, Mandela, we have you on because we want to talk about, obviously, the election. Much has been talked about, certainly both uh, in the media, but certainly on uh, social media, about the critical role that African-American voters played in the election victory. Um, and so we want to talk about that, but then also talk a little bit about how this and what this means for he us here in Wisconsin as we head into 2018. So with that, just uh, your, you know, your top line thoughts on, uh, uh, on this topic uh, coming out of Tuesday night. Well, let me say how exciting it is first. Uh, someone who has very deep roots in Alabama. My mother is from Alabama. I went to college in Alabama. Uh, I frequently still visit Alabama. So this victory is, uh, I feel, a, a personal victory here. Alabama is uh, my second home. Uh, so I want to start by making one of the important points that uh, I don't hear enough, and that is the fact that uh, African Americans are 27% uh, of the population in Alabama. African-Americans were 28% of the voting population uh, Tuesday night, which uh, just goes to show how uh, when, you know, circumstances, uh, when you have a very unresponsive uh, government, when you have, a, you know, a governor, a legislature who continue uh, to legislate in a way that keeps people in poverty, not raising the minimum wage, uh, not addressing issues of health care, uh, there will be a reckoning, and there was a reckoning. Now, there was a gift uh, with Roy Moore and how awful uh, of a person he was that, you know, that stopped a lot of people uh, from coming out to vote. But the fact is Donald Trump had 62% of the vote in November. And with that 62% of the vote, uh, all of that support has been lost. Donald Trump did not get 50% of the vote in Wisconsin. And... Milwaukee County, uh, voters of color uh, were not particularly uh, enthusiastic about the election in 2016. Uh, and that means that we have to drive home a message about how we're going to fight to make sure that people have more money in their pocket, make sure that people have access to quality and affordable health care, and to make sure uh, that we provide uh, a solid education to students in every zip code. And, you know, speaking of the launch of the, uh, of the In Child Poverty in Wisconsin, 200,000 people uh, excuse me, 200,000 children are living in poverty right now in Wisconsin. We only have two cities uh, with a population over 200,000. And once we get people, candidates who are going to actually address those issues, who are going to, who don't mind, who won't be afraid to talk about those issues in every part of the state, uh, then we'll see a difference in uh, our electoral successes. 
one other point, too, I want to make uh, about Alabama, because well, that's a, that was just over a year after the 2016 presidential election, uh, but just under a year before uh, the presidential election, I want to remind people that Louisiana elected a Democratic governor, and Louisiana's Democratic governor also ran on expanding Medicaid, and he ran against a somewhat unpopular Republican, but nowhere as, uh, as unpopular or damaging as a Roy Moore would have been. He was actually a sitting U.S. Senator, David Vitter. Uh, so there is success when we come to grips, when we buckle down and we, we, we hit hard on these issues uh, that matter to a majority of people in the state. That's totally right. I mean, a, a couple points I want to make about this. Uh, just to take a step back, you know, the way I think about, and I think there are many people um, on the left who think about our politics, is just an extension of the corporate capitalist system. And the capitalist system is essentially uh, predicated on extraction. Extraction from communities of color in particular, but extraction, extraction from workers. And I think we see that repeated in our politics and by both political parties. And it's something that comes up again and again um, and is incredibly frustrating uh, for several reasons. First of all, it's wrong. Um, it's not about equity. It's not about justice. Um, but second of all, it's just why we lose over and over again. And I think the point that a lot of people are making and, you know, Mandela made, you know, the strength of the black community, not just the black vote, but black organizing, black issues, um, you know, is that far too often our political system, including the Democratic Party, uh, takes for granted these communities, extracts from these communities, extracts votes, but doesn't invest in them. And you know, we'll see um, very often. You know, when we get down to the wire um, for the twenty, you know, for any midterm elections, for the presidential elections, that that's when the parties and the super PACs and the unions come into play um, to last minute you know, dump in a bunch of canvassers who maybe don't even live in Wisconsin, don't even live in Milwaukee, don't even live in Alabama, um, just to try to pull out the vote, extract the vote, when really what we should be doing, um, and a lot of people have been saying this, including, you know, brilliant organizers, women of color on social media, in, in traditional media, is investing in black leadership, investing in black elected officials. Um, it's not just about the vote, it's about organizing, um, which I know, Matt, you have a lot to say about that too, but, you know, folks, um, you know, aren't, they're not just voting, they are organizing in a way that we have a lot to learn from, uh, and so what do we do? Um, you know, if we, if we want to do better on the left, what do we do? And I think it is, like I said, investing time and resources to supporting and uplifting, uh, you know, women of color, leaders of color, um, and there are like a couple people just like to wrap up that like quickly come to mind for me um, right here at home. You know, we've got Sparkle Ashley, who is a social worker, a dynamic woman who is running for county board in a really tough race. Um, you know, if we want to, you know, not just give lip service to the black community, not just ask for the votes of our black neighbors um, for Democrats, but really listen to them and support them, then we should be volunteering for Sparkle. We should be donating to her grassroots campaign. Um, and there are a lot of people like her. And then, of course, there's organizing, which I think, you know, you guys can talk a little bit more about um, at Citizen Action, at other organizations. But how do we invest in people who are doing the real organizing year round, not just the week before election day? Well, I think that uh, Mandela and, Re and Rebecca are both right. Uh, Mandela's right that uh, 
This was not won by some brilliant uh, Washington Post consultant. This was uh, African-American folks in Alabama standing up and voting in much higher proportions uh, uh, than, than whites did in Alabama at, at their presidential turnout level, and that we need to keep that momentum going. But even with that, and with uh, some voters falling off voting absentee rather than vote for more, this was a very close election. So I think the, uh, the, the, the kind of news pundits spin that somehow we've turned the corner and uh, in, in a place like Alabama, one of the five most conservative states in the country, I know Mandela's more of an expert than I am in Alabama, but I did get a degree at University of Georgia, that we're not there yet and that we need to both understand what an important part of the current progressive base African Americans are and deliver for them. Because I know the Alabama leadership has simply ignored the minimum wage, Medicaid expansion, uh, other huge issues. But it's not like the National Democratic platform has a whole lot to offer either to, to, to expand opportunity and transform people's lives to do something like cut child poverty in half. So we need to be aware of that. And then we still have a huge uh, working class problem. There are still a lot of working class Alabamans who who went to the polls and voted for Roy Moore and somehow saw that in their interest. We need to continue to work and break that down as well and not, and, and not ignore those folks. Can, can, I, can I push back just a little bit? I will say that we're not there in terms of, uh, in terms of what the party uh, has been delivering or what the party uh, intends to deliver, but I will say that we're much closer. I mean, it's, it's still Alabama. I mean, I'm actually, I'm still in shock that Alabama elected a Democratic U.S. Senator regardless of uh, who he ran against. It, it was a very close election, uh, but nobody expected uh, Doug Jones to win in a landslide. Uh, so I will, I will say that we're much closer uh, electorally, uh, and have, having an infrastructure in place uh, that we've been in a very long time. If we can pull this sort of upset off in Alabama, because it still was an upset regardless of, uh, who, the, of who the opponent was, that we can do it anywhere. So with that, we got to take a brief break. Mandela, I'm glad you can stick around with us. We want to we talk more about this. This is a great conversation. Again, we are Citizen Action. This is Battleground Wisconsin. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. We are Citizen Action, and this is the Battleground Wisconsin. We're having a great conversation about the election in Alabama with Mandela Barnes, former state representative, and our full panel here. So uh, when we left, uh, Mandela, you had just been talking about how, yes, while you know, we, we don't want to fool ourselves about maybe how far we are. This was, you know, you don't want to lose sight of this was a huge shocker of a victory. I'd, I want to give you a chance if you had any other thoughts on that. And then I know Rebecca is eager to say something. So, Mandela, did you have anything else that you wanted to add on that? Alabama is a state that uh, still celebrates Confederate Heritage Day. You know, this is, uh, this is, this is I, I can't drive home uh, how, important, how important this is uh, that, that Alabama, the Democrats saw victory um, in a state like that. We saw victory in Louisiana. We have elected one Democrat in Wisconsin statewide since 2012. That's Doug LaFollette. Folks should just think about that for a minute. Rebecca. So, yeah, I, I, this is exactly where I wanted to get to next, which is 
For folks who think that something is not happening in our country and our politics since 2016, uh, I don't know what it's going to take. And I, I certainly hear folks when they say, well, 1.5 um, points above a accused pedophile maniac is not progress, That as much progress as we would like to see, if progress at all. It is a huge political upset. I couldn't agree more with Mandela. Uh, and I think what we saw in Virginia was a huge upset. Uh, and you know there are a lot of folks, including some really respected political scientists. There's an article today uh, by Alan Abramowitz uh, from Emory University uh, in the Washington Post talking about, is this a change year? I think it's a change year. Um, and yesterday I was dancing around my office because uh, you know a few months ago when people thought I was crazy when the Working Families Party uh, recruited Randy Bryce to run against Paul Ryan, you'll never beat Paul Ryan. I look a lot less crazy today. <laughs> Uh, uh, Robert, your thoughts? Well, I think what Rebecca and Mandela are saying is all true, that this may well, may well be a surge election, something's happening, and so we should, we, we, we should certainly be excited about that, and I'm not trying to throw cold water on that, um, <laughs> but I just do want to point out that we've had change elections before, and let's face it, they didn't change the country. So I would interpret this as an opening, an opportunity. But people need outside of Alabama and places like Wisconsin to run on something, then to win, and we need to all make them win, not just they win on their own, and then and then with a mandate actually become the party of reform again and actually start to actually change the society and expand opportunity and do all the things that need to get done and not defend the status quo anymore. And so that's why I'm pretty disappointed by what the National Democratic, uh, say the members of the, the, in the in the Senate and the House, the Democratic platform, with some exceptions, is mostly defensive. And that needs to stop. And we need to have a, a bold, proactive vision. So there's no thing to do that. So I agree with Rebecca totally that uh, people should be excited. But we, we, can't, we can't boot away this opportunity. And unfortunately, Mandela, uh, we don't, this is, this is, I'm going to reverse what conventional wisdom would be. Our problem in Wisconsin in, 20, uh, in, in 2018 is that we don't have as many black folks as Alabama has. Well, that's true, but also you think about how many votes we lost the state by last year was very close to the number of, uh, of, of people of color who didn't show up to vote because they didn't feel the reason to. cautionary note, though, is that the biggest part of the electorate that's moving right is uh, white working people, and they still may still be moving right. So we need to counterbalance that. And so I totally agree with Constable But I just want to point out that how far they went from may not be the end of movement unless we become the party of reform that actually has the economic, the health care answers for them. Just, just one quick second, Rebecca, because I, I, I think that, you know, yes, there is a, there is a shift to the right as well, and I think that Alabama is a state that would be very emblematic of that. It's how, it's how Roy Moore uh, beat Luther Strange in the primary. Uh, so with that said, um, right here at home in Wisconsin, now I will, the, the point that you did make about the economic message, about the message about health care, uh, that will be important to reclaiming the voters that we lost in, 20, uh, in, in 2016. I mean, it, it's more of a reclamation project for us. Yeah, and if I could just do one super quick thing, um, you know, I think yep. I, I don't disagree that 
we on the left and Democrats um, need to stand for something, stand for reform, be uh, have bold policies. I, I totally agree with that, Robert. But I also think the other piece of that puzzle is nothing about us without us is for us, right? The people who need to be leading the crafting of those policies, who need to be talking about them publicly, who need to be running for office, who need to be running organizations, organizing their communities, are the people from these communities. And it could be, you know, rural parts of Wisconsin where you know we've got some real economic troubles it could be very diverse parts of our cities but like that I think is the lesson as well that it, it cannot be without substance I completely agree but it also cannot be imposed on people we need to be a part of our own politics one thing that I just want to add is you know as it relates to Wisconsin I think right the key thing and I think people have talked about this is if we don't have the substance about the issues that matter here we don't have the organizing pieces that you've all talked about and Rebecca just underlined right we're we're not gonna we're not gonna mobilize our base you know whether they be african-american or or, or or not right and I think that's a real we saw that in 2016 and so I think the message here is very clear right um, we, we absolutely have to talk about these issues. We absolutely have to have real organizing. We have to start to think long-term the way Rebecca is talking about, right? In terms of who is leading these movements, right? Huge opportunity. Uh, and we and us as leaders have to start to expect that in the kind of campaigns and what we're working on. So uh, Mandela, before we go, since we really appreciate the fact that you got up early in Los Angeles uh, to record this with us, um, I, I wanna make sure you have any finding, final closing thoughts uh, on this topic. Uh, my final thoughts are just that this is what happens when you get serious, when you, when you take uh, communities of color, when you don't take any voter uh, for granted, you win. Uh, and that means being organized. It means having an effective message. It means talking to people. And that's something we haven't done effectively in quite some time. Uh, so when we apply that strategy uh, to next year, we, will, we can see Scott Walker face uh, defeat as well. And I am, I am very optimistic. Uh, and, I, and I'm not blindly optimistic either because it's going to take hard work. It's not just going to happen. Uh, the wave won't just occur. It's going to take uh, actual people uh, coming together to create the energy to make the wave happen. Well, I stand up in all 72 counties. No, I think <laughs> that, that's a great, important point, right? Like also expanding the battlefield and making sure that we're fighting throughout uh, in all of our communities. Uh, and as Rebecca said, also led by people from our communities in all, all of these counties. Uh, well, Mandela, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today and provide some really important perspective and insight. Thank you for having me. So obviously it was great to have uh, former Representative Barnes with us. Uh, great conversation. Um, Robert, we, you know, before we uh, go to break, uh, Mandela mentioned the, role, the critical role poverty plays in, in, you know, in our economy. And you are today, along with a number of other partners, launching a campaign to deal specifically with childhood poverty, but to really start talking about poverty. Could you give us a little preview here? Uh, well, we've been working on developing this for three years now and working with three very close partners. It was Council of Churches, Wisdom, which is a faith-based network as well, 
and uh, Kids Forward, formerly known as the Council of Children and Families. And we have had forums and discussions all over the state for three years at churches and religious institutions, thinking about the poverty issue uh, and what we should do about it, and have come to the conclusion that it is a completely solvable human-made problem, as Nelson Mandela once said. But we have to set real goals, uh, make them a moral goal, and to get the state committed. And I can give you example, historical examples, because some people may be saying, well, uh, that's not possible, because that's one of the things the right has done to us, made us feel like great things aren't possible anymore. We, and, and we dramatically reduced senior poverty. Seniors were the poorest group of people in, in the United States in the late 1960s. Uh, right now, they're the least poor group, and that's because of continuous public investment. Children went the other way. We improved it for a while in the 70s. Then we, then we cut off the investment. And when Great Britain put it in law, they were going to eliminate child poverty and then put in solutions to scale and track them every year publicly and kept the investment up, they cut their child poverty rate by two-thirds. So they went from having a lot more child poverty in the United States to having a lot less. Hmm. And so this is a, a, what we're doing, and a lot of religious leaders will be talking at these events we're having all over the state today, um, is going to say that, that this is a moral necessity. We want to commit the state of Wisconsin to cutting child poverty in half and racial disparities in half in the next decade as a step towards eliminating them altogether. With that, we got to quick take a break. We're going to talk more about this on the back end. You can give us some details after our break. With that, we are the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action Wisconsin. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Robert, you were telling us about the campaign that's launching today to try to end child poverty. Uh, and so multiple events. Give us, give us some of the details. And it is uh, called uh, the End Child Poverty uh, Campaign. And it is it has its own dedicated website, nchildpovertywi.org. That's nchildpovertywi.org. And there's a lot of social media out there. You can sign a petition supporting cutting child poverty and racial disparities in half in the next 10 years on that website, nchildpovertywi.org. So we'd really appreciate it if everyone did that, who, 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 who can hear this show through the Internet or on the airway. Uh, but we are trying to start a movement uh, to set a goal of cutting child poverty in half in 10 years, racial disparities in half in 10 years. And there's a whole number of religious leaders and, uh, behind this working with us in coalition. And so raising a, this is a moral issue, but it is also just fundamentally an issue about freedom. Because if you are born poor, and by the way, you are five times more likely to be poor if you're an African-American child than a white child, then your life prospects are much worse once you're an adult. And, of course, there's a lot of suffering and, uh, and isolation when you're a child as well. And you really are, in many ways, a second-class citizen, which ought to be anything we can tolerate the 21st century in the United States of America. And so we want Wisconsin to lead the way on this. And this is, some, this is the kind of thing that could excite people because people want hope and they want to believe that we can solve big problems. This is a huge problem that... No one is for. Everyone is for children, right? But then it's not even a discussion in our state that the number of children eligible for free and reduced school lunches is dramatically expanding. 
that is getting worse and worse all over the state because so many kids are growing up poor or near poor in this state, yet it's not even discussed in Madison. So this End Child Poverty Campaign seeks to address that and to build a movement to actually uh, you know, exercise our moral authority and our moral ownership over what kind of state, what kind of society we live in. So again, folks, if you want to get involved in that campaign, please go to the website, sign our petition. If you can make any of the, uh, obviously all the events are occurring today, but this is going to be, there's going to be a lot more work on this, so please, please get involved. With that, we are going to talk about a number of different topics that are occurring in the state and we're going to start, and this is, again, these are interrelated to a, a number of these topics, but, you know, when you have the kind of poverty that we've been racked with in, the, in, in, this, uh, in this state, you're going to have issues with, uh, with crim uh, you know, issues with crime. And one of the issues that we also have had as a related to that is we have a complete state of mass incarceration going on right now in, in, in Wisconsin. And we wanted to briefly make our listeners aware of a new piece of legislation that Representative uh, Goyke introduced that would, it's actually a series of bills, but the key is to really cut our prison populations and start addressing the fact that we're incarcerating too many people. First and foremost, our prisons were never made to hold the amount of people that are in prison. They were built to hold about, according to Representative Goyke, about 16,000 people, and we have over 23,000 people living in our prisons. So in a nutshell, what this is an attempt to do is really to try to look at, can we ch change parole violation uh, uh, restrictions? Can we expand the state's earned release program and dealing with Lincoln Hills. So it's a sort of a three-part uh, program. Without getting into the details about this, and I think we could later on the show, we wanted to at least make our listeners aware of this. Because uh, this is the kind of stuff we need to be talking about, right? And, and it's, it's important. Uh, Rebecca, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, only that I, I do agree it's, it's critically important. Um, and we need to have a real sense of urgency about um, these issues. Um, you know, many of us um, uh, have loved ones who are incarcerated, have ourselves been incarcerated, but even for those of us who don't, who don't know anyone who is, we have to take on that same sense of urgency um, because people are in cages tonight, tomorrow, every day, um, and unnecessarily and inhumanely, and for a whole host of reasons. And so, you know, these are really needed reforms. Um, you know, there's a couple other things that we've talked about before and mentioned earlier today, but, you know, the opioid crisis, um, you know, the mental health crisis, you know, these are all um, things that contribute to putting people in cages, um, extracting from our communities uh, economically, politically, um, in terms of our social capital. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot that we need to do, and this is certainly a very important piece. And one of the critical pieces, actually, of what he's looking at is how, how do we, you know, get folks also who have mental health issues and drug uh, and alcohol addictions into treatment, right, and, and, and not actually just having these folks sit in, in, in prisons. So another topic that I wanted to actually get Robert's comments on, and that is this, there's been a huge move across the state where we have counties 
that have been joining uh, a lawsuit against opioid uh, drug makers. And uh, Citizen Action has obviously been uh, working on this issue uh, because we want to make sure that this is seen as a public health issue, uh, essentially connected to what we were just talking about, right, with incarceration rates. Robert, just your thoughts on this. We now have over 50 counties that have joined this lawsuit, and I think uh, Adegami joined this week, and La Crosse is uh, considering it. Uh, this has been really getting uh, serious uh, momentum this past year. So this really, these set of lawsuits are really important, and they bring together two big elements. I mean, we have this opiate epidemic, uh, which is driven by a lot of things, and which Governor Walker loves to call special sessions on and say he's doing something about, but then he offers a series of pilot programs. So it really is a huge public uh, health crisis. He, he claims it is, and the Attorney General of the state of Wisconsin uh, claims it is. Uh, then you'd think we have a massive investment, the way we would with a few flu epidemic or some sort of fearful disease, but that's not happening. The second element here, so counties are, are where the rubber beats the road. They provide human services, state of Wisconsin, good walkers, by cutting their revenue dramatically. And so they're hit with the bills, and the bills are not for actually uh, moving the scale. They're just you know, to do what they can to uh, you know, put their finger in the dike. So that's one element of this. Uh, but the other element is that the pharmaceutical industry, which is one of the major extractive industries in our, in our state, as Rebecca was talking about in our country, about, about literally a business model from Wall Street that's based on extracting wealth, actually promoted opiates and actually uh, got people addicted to opiates as a business model. And so these lawsuits say, okay, if we're not going to actually, to the federal or state government, fund real solution to the opiate epidemic and treat it like a big public crisis, and maybe one of the major cause agents of it, the, the, the highly profitable pharmaceutical corporations should pay. And these are very, uh, uh, very good lawsuits because, guess what? You can prove in court that the pharmaceutical corporation has sought to profit uh, by literally pushing opiates on people, and that that is a business model and that can be established in court. So this really brings those two strands together uh, in, 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 to discuss really the real causes of one of the biggest public health crises we've faced in many years. Of course, economic desperation is part of it as well, and the right-wing neoliberal approach to the economy is also a huge uh, uh, causing, causative fact. Well, before we go to break, we actually want to, I want to hit one more topic, an, another, uh, th an, it's a bill that's out there that has been stalled. And that is a bill, actually, Robert, you mentioned the neoliberal economy. Uh, one of the things I think folks understand is we just do not have enough revenue in our state government, and we need to start addressing that. Well, there is a loophole out there right now that allows bi like big box stores that they can actually base their tax assessments not on their actual stores uh, that are in operation, but on their vacant stores. And so this costs us a lot of resources, and there's actually legislation, uh, and it's bipartisan, to actually remove this loophole. And, and this, this really hurts a lot of communities, right, where these stores are now increasingly, these are our hardware stores, right? And uh, they bring in significant revenue. Uh, but this has been held up by leadership, GOP leadership, and uh, there's a great story, we'll have a link to it in the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, where they expose why this is happening. And you won't be surprised to know, it's money, right? There are well 
well-heeled special interests, corporate business interests, and of course the industry behind this and with significant amounts of money. But again, this is, you know, if we're not, if we're going to have the kind of resources we need in our communities to actually address and create the, address our issues and create opportunity, we cannot have this kind of loophole. So a big shout out to all the legislators that are trying to push this, but uh, please take a look at uh, the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign article on this. Uh, so we'll, uh, we actually have to take a break. We got to get out of here. On the back side of this, uh, we are going to spend a little bit of time talking about. Uh, it is the fifth year anniversary of uh, the Newtown uh, shooting, and uh, want to use that to reflect a little bit, but then also talk a bit about kind of how there's been very little progress and how do we get moving on this. So with that, we are the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Before we talk about the five-year anniversary of the shooting at Newtown, we, we got to mention there was Foxconn news this week, and uh, I want to thank Rebecca for reminding us before we uh, escape another show. Um, what, what, I, what happened this week is, well, it is worth pointing out that the village of Mount Pleasant uh, finally approved their payments to Foxconn, so some of the bags of money are already moving. Uh, but Robert, this seeing this article about uh, about this money moving reminded me you had you also had something you wanted to mention about uh, Bob Ballman and 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 just how ridiculous all this Foxconn uh, deal is and and what what kind of bizarre scenarios it produces. Well, Bob uh, Ballman for statewide listeners is an is an alderman in Milwaukee, and uh, he has been outspoken about how we're actually going to make Foxconn jobs available to people who need them in Wisconsin's largest city in Milwaukee, where despite right-wingers claiming we have a full employment economy, you're hard-pressed to make that argument in Milwaukee or the hard-pressed rural areas across Wisconsin either. Uh, but he has proposed, it's got a ton of attention, and they're not going to provide uh, mass transportation so folks can get to these jobs from the city of Milwaukee, that Milwaukee and that part of Racine County, so we could be closer and can have and can move people there uh, close to close to the plant, close to Mount Pleasant. Now that seems like a bizarre solution, but it's equally bizarre not to provide, not to invest in mass transit if we claim that this is a great jobs program. And we said this last week on Battleground Wisconsin, but when Bowman asked at a meeting. Uh, Scott Deisel, uh, Governor Walker, Secretary of Administration, about why we wouldn't invest in mass transit, he said that was a government solution. So think about right-wing ideology run amok. You can send $3 billion state money. It looks like $700 million of local money. Uh, our money, give it to Foxconn. That's not a government solution. But having mass transit so people can get there and other jobs in the region that's government. We shouldn't do it. Just think about how silly that is and how idiotic right-wing ideology has become when it comes to the economy and, and uh, in Wisconsin, anything that would actually improve people's lives or expand opportunities. I agree with all of that. Um, and to, to take the news about Foxconn from Milwaukee and uh, move a little bit um, down the state to Racine, there is a special election to replace uh, Representative Corey Mason on Tuesday, December 19th. 
Uh, it's a Democratic primary, and it's very exciting because we have two incredibly progressive candidates running, uh, which is a good problem to have. And there was a debate hosted by the Racine NAACP and then 30-something other groups. Really excellent two-hour debate that I attended um, the other evening uh, earlier this week. And in it, um, it would be of no surprise to listeners that Foxconn was a big topic. And I, I wanted to mention this because so much of what we see in the press is incredibly important um, and critical of Foxconn from the perspective of people in other parts of the state not getting this investment, from the perspective of folks locally, uh, issues about transportation, about uh, corporate tax cuts, all these things that we've talked about there are important. But I also wanted to layer in um, a lesser heard um, concerns from people in the local community. And part of the reason why they're lesser heard is that m representatives in the county of Racine, um, elected officials who, you know, are sent to Madison from the county of Racine have been very publicly supportive of Foxconn and haven't expressed these concerns quite as articulately as I heard at this debate. And so two things I wanted to mention. One, um, one of the candidates, Miss Greta Neubauer, um, really, again, very progressive young woman, uh, you know, brought up an excellent point, which is unemployment in Racine is so terrible that if they added 800 jobs, if 800 people from the city of Racine got jobs at Foxconn, they would just be on parity with Wisconsin's statewide unemployment. And so what are we what are we going to do about that? Um, and then uh, social worker and alderman John Tate II, the other candidate, um, full disclosure, Working Families Party uh, endorsed him and supporting him. Uh, he, he brought up two very important things. One, as I've mentioned in the past, Racine um, was recently found to be, based on uh, inequity, income inequality, wealth inequality, the fourth worst city in America to be black. Um, and so what does that mean when we're talking about the jobs at Foxconn? But the other perspective he brought up that we haven't heard talked about as much, and I, and I really want to give voice to it because it's real and it's coming from the community, is the concern that, you know, if Foxconn does well, which I'm sure people want it to do, and there are local jobs, or people are moving to Racine for those jobs, do we see gentrification? And what are we going to have on paper to ensure that the people who have been in Racine, struggling in Racine, making it what it is, trying to make it the best city it can be, don't get pushed out as soon as things get better? And so I, I just wanted to mention that on the podcast. Sounds like a government solution. <laughs> Okay, well, that's very fitting, Robert. But before we go, uh, we do want to spend some time uh, reflecting and also looking forward, I guess, on, on Newtown. Uh, it, today, we're recording December 14th. is the five-year anniversary of what was just absolutely one of the more horrific shootings in, in our country's history. I believe it might have been like the fifth largest. But for folks who don't remember, this is uh, the Sandy Hook where 20 first graders... That's right. First graders were gunned down along with six educators. But I think what's uh, compelling is how little has been done since then. And I actually look back five years ago when, when this happened, and, there, and, and we actually even talked about it on this podcast. We were recording back then. And we talked about it as there was actually some hope that some very modest things were going to pass and, and, and pass Congress. And if you remember, the Senate rejected it. It got gummed up and, and, and went down. And since then, virtually nothing has happened. And we're five years later, and here we are. Um, and uh, so I, I wanted to get any thoughts anybody might have about like sort of 
the future, but I do. Before I do that, I do want to point out it was particularly poignant, and I and I, uh, that we had our annual meeting last week in assembly, and 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 the gentleman who won uh, our progressive activist of the year was Kari Pennebaker, whose whose life and really his his his, his work is around uh, trying to deal with with this issue. So uh, obviously we're honored that he won that award, but like it is sobering as to how far we we still have to go on this absolutely critical public health issue. Robert, any thoughts? Just that, I mean, it's amazing how desensitized we are, how, how much we've normalized the idea that our government can't do basic things. And there's nothing stopping us, you know, physically from having reasonable gun regulations that protect people's safety, that also guarantee people's Second Amendment rights, especially the hunting, uh, which is nothing, not the target of this at all. Uh, but we have a broken political system where a very well-financed pressure group that lies to its constituents in order to rev them up uh, can, can, can essentially kill people, cause death. Uh, for, the, for what is essentially an alliance between a, an extreme right-wing ideology and the gun manufacturers that profit from selling more and more and more guns, uh, including guns that are designed to, uh, to kill people, not for hunting and not for, and not for safety. And so I just think that this is another example of where it turns people off from the system, that we need to, if we're the ones on the, uh, as progressives who believe in democracy, which we are, we need to make democracy work, so we need to not give up and push through this, and people need to start losing elections uh, for basically kowtowing to the NRA. That's the only solution. Yeah, I don't have too much to add. Um, you know, I, I think I, I feel probably similarly um, to most decent people, just like almost speechless. Um, but something I think about a lot, uh, about many things that are happening in our, in our time is this idea that, um, things are so bad and so extreme. Um, and to, to quickly pivot to another issue and I'll come back to this, you know, we have, um, someone in the United States, uh, you know, in the white house, a president of the United States, uh, who has the nuclear codes, who calls the head of state of North Korea Little Rocket Man. Um, and, you know, Ezra Klein from Vox, um, who uh, has a great podcast, says on it all the time, you know, he's terrified of what can happen um, and how we will be judged by later generations in history. They say, why didn't you do something? This is so terrifying. And Sandy Hook um, and what happened in Las Vegas this year, um, these things are so bad. Uh, the massacre of six-year-olds is so bad, and of course, you know, all, all, those of us listening and, and speaking right now um, are doing something, and I agree about, you know, we need, there need to be electoral consequences for being in the pocket of the NRA, um, but it almost doesn't seem like uh, that's enough in response to the massacre of six-year-olds. Yeah, I, what, what, what I find so difficult about this issue is Robert mentioned, right, we have the, the Second Amendment, right, Second Amendment. So the, the gun rights, right, like it just, it seems so clear to me, right, that a child, all of our right to like live is so more important than anyone's fundamental right to like have whatever gun they want in their house, right? Like, and I just, until we like grapple with that, those, when those two quote fundamental values are in collide, which is really what this debate is, 
it's it's absurd and as robert mentioned it is only their political power that allows them to like win given that like obviously right those first graders had a right to live and that right is trumps any of those other rights and we just we don't have the political power to deliver that right now that is our challenge going forward uh and with that we have to wrap up this podcast we want to thank former state representative mandela barnes for joining us and as he mentioned rightly co-op member uh join our co-ops uh, i'll have a link to that online please consider joining our organizing cooperatives but with that I want to thank brian woolridge who always makes the podcast happen every week our producer and we will see you all next week here at the battleground wisconsin yeah.